Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 157 of the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm assistant to Peter Lightheart, the president of Theopolis Institute. Theopolis trains men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs will learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. Today, we're launching into a brand new series on the podcast from James Jordan. Years ago, Jordan did a series of lectures on the life of Jacob that we think would be really helpful for you, and that's what we're starting today. In this episode, he's going to discuss the context of the Jacob narrative, and a few topics that he's going to touch on are our assumptions about the Jacob story, is Jacob a perfect man, Jordan's going to give a survey of Genesis as well as discuss the sevenfold structure of it. And of course, he'll get into interesting little things along the way, like how humans are symbolized by plants and much more. We hope that you enjoy and are sharpened by this talk on the life of Jacob. And as always, thank you so much for listening. The Jacob narrative in Genesis. I'm sure all of us know the outline of the story of Jacob, Jacob and Esau, Jacob getting the birthright and the blessing from Esau and from his father and earning his wives and having all these kids and coming back and wrestling with God and then his son's going bad. But for the last several hundred years, the story of Jacob has been pretty much completely and totally misunderstood. It's assumed that Jacob is a bad guy. Spurgeon was once asked by a lady who heard him preach on Romans chapter 9, Jacob have I loved and Esau have I hated. And she said, well, I just don't see how God could hate anyone. I don't see how God could hate Esau. And Spurgeon said, well, the harder question, madam, is how could God love Jacob? The assumption being Jacob was such a rotten person. The Jacob as a rotten person interpretation is not universal, and you don't find it in earlier commentaries. You don't find it in Luther. I think really the culprit here is Calvin. Calvin is so impressed with the depravity of man that Calvin sees sinfulness in the Bible in places where it isn't there. He just assumes that every time anybody in the Bible does anything, it's sinful. So if he can make it out to be a sin, he does. Theologically, that's okay. We are sinners and everything we do is mixed with sin. But it's not the best way to read the text. You would hear when Abraham goes down into Egypt in chapter 12 and tells Pharaoh that Sarai is his sister, which is true. And then Pharaoh seizes her and puts her in his harem, and God curses Pharaoh with plague, and Pharaoh has to let Abram go and Sarah go, and they leave with a whole lot of spoil. Obviously, Abram has been blessed. Pharaoh has been cursed. And the only other thing we read, and I mean, it says Yahweh struck Pharaoh in his house with plague. Then Pharaoh comes and he tries to blame Abram, and he says, what is this that you've done? Why didn't you tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is your sister so that I took her for my wife? So here's your wife, take her and let her go. Well, that's what Pharaoh says. That's not what the text says. That's not what God says. God blesses Abram. Pharaoh sees Sarai without permission. Clearly, as you read the text, Pharaoh's at fault. Especially since Sarai was Abram's sister, Pharaoh would have had to negotiate with Abram for her hand. And that's real clear in Genesis. Genesis makes that clear. In fact, 
we will have occasion to look at a story. Well, we won't, as a matter of fact. But in the case of Isaac and Rebekah, Abram's servant negotiates with Rebekah's brother. And by claiming to be Sarai's brother, Abram is saying, if you're interested in her, you talk to me. Well, that would have enabled him to postpone forever, giving her to Pharaoh. But Pharaoh seized her. don't know that there was a sexual rape that took place, but he certainly grabbed her, had his soldiers take her into his harem. Now, who's at fault here? Well, you read the Calvinistic commentators, Abraham is at fault. Abraham lied. And poor Pharaoh just made this innocent mistake. And evil Abraham. See, we're so sinners. Even the great patriarchs like Abram are terrible sinners. That's not what the text says. And the text doesn't even hint at that. The only person who accuses Abraham of sin is Pharaoh. All of this anticipates what happens with Moses later on, of course. When Moses is before Pharaoh, what does Pharaoh say? This is all your fault, Moses. Do we believe Pharaoh then? When Elijah stands before Ahab, Ahab says, Elijah, this is all your fault. You're the troubler of Israel. Do we believe Ahab? But here when Pharaoh says to Abram, this is all your fault, the Reformed tradition tends to say, oh, Pharaoh is right. Abram is a great, awful sinner. Well, it's not that Abraham does everything right. Listening to Sarai and having Ishmael with Hagar is wrong. But these stories are not just one story of rotten, sinful behavior after another. I think that pretty much for Calvin, the stories in the Bible are all illustrations of sin and grace. Every story is a story of sin, which is supposed to lead to repentance and grace. That is not the case. As a matter of fact, I will argue, and I'll stand much more with Luther than with Calvin here, that the patriarchs are, for the most part, examples, good examples, positive examples of faith. Faith in difficult circumstances. And that as a matter of fact, Jacob is presented as pretty much a perfect man. In fact, the text says he is a perfect man. And I maintain that the Bible does not ever show Jacob committing any sins at all. Now, of course, he did. <laughs> he was a human being. He wasn't Jesus. So he sinned. Just as Job was a sinner. But although Job was a sinner, the Bible's verdict on Job was that he was a perfect man. God commands Abraham back in, I'm going to find this right away, 17 verse 1, you know this, Genesis 17 verse 1, when Abram was 99 years old, Yahweh appeared to Abram and said, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be perfect. Walk before me and be perfect. This is a word in Hebrew, is tam. Now just put it up there so that, however you translate this, Walk before me and be a mature, perfect person. Walk before me and, my Bible says, they paraphrase it, be blameless. Then out in the margin it says, walk before me and be blameless or complete, perfect, having integrity. Walk before me and be blameless, be complete, be perfect. That's what God tells Abram to do. In Genesis 25, it says, just listen, Verse 27, when the boys grew up, Esau became a skillful hunter, a man of the field, but Jacob was a perfect man, dwelling in tents. Oh, I couldn't say he was perfect. We know Jacob wasn't perfect. He was the most rotten sinner in the Bible. 
So my version says Jacob was a peaceful man, which is not what Tom means at all. It means perfect or blameless. Exactly what God said to Abraham, be perfect, the text says Jacob was. Now that's not our mythology. Our inherited mythology is that Jacob was a rotten, evil person. But the text doesn't say that. The text says he's a perfect man. Y'all hear the same kind of mythology about Rachel. Rachel was an evil person. When we get to it, Rachel's not an evil person. Rebecca was an evil person. That's why there's no burial of Rebecca in Genesis. Is that right? Yes, true that some of the women are given burial notices and some aren't. She's one that's not. Does that prove that she was wicked and evil? I hope to show you that there's no hint of that. What Rebecca did in deceiving Isaac was absolutely right, because God had told her to do it. So I will argue. Jacob was a peaceful man. I think some of the earlier versions say Jacob was a smooth man. Anybody have that? Jacob was a smooth man. Walk before me and be smooth. That's what God said to Abraham. Be smooth, Abraham. Jacob was a smooth man. Nope. The first thing we read about Jacob is that he is a perfect man. That leads us to assume that unless there's strong evidence to the contrary, we're not going to read a whole bunch of stories about sin. Rather, we're going to be reading stories about an exemplary person and what it would mean to be a good, righteous, faithful Christian in a difficult world. And I think that you will see that that is in fact the way the story of Jacob is presented. Jacob is the model Israelite. His name is changed to Israel. And as such is a forerunner of Jesus. The Jacob narrative then, looking at our notes, is the sixth section of Genesis corresponding to the sixth day. The focus is a picture of a true man. A man is made on the sixth day. And in this narrative, Jacob is not the rotten sinner. Esau is the rotten sinner. Now, just as I made the point a second ago, that the text says nothing bad about Jacob, only good things, we will find the text says nothing good about Esau, only bad things. You want a white and black story, this is it. And as I say, it's often not read that way because of our tendency to see sin everywhere, even in stories that are not supposed to be pointing it out. This story is not about horrible sin and repentance. David with Bathsheba is that story. Saul and Jonathan is that story. Well, Saul never repents. This is not that story. This is a story of two brothers, one rotten to the core and one perfect. Not absolutely sinless, but perfect. And that's the way this story is going to be written. In a sense, it's not sophisticated. You say, well, these are not really well-rounded characters. A well-rounded character in a novel is complex. And he's got good tendencies and bad tendencies and things he has to fight and wrestle with and all the rest of it. Well, these are not complex characters. Yes, these men both lived about 130 years, and I'm sure they had all kinds of complexities in their lives. But the story as it's written in the Bible is not written for that purpose. The story as it's written in the Bible is designed to set out two contrasting kinds of people. A good Adam and a bad Adam, Esau and Jacob. And although the narratives are complex, 
The character types are not. That's what makes it interesting. I've certainly heard enough sermons on the evilness of Jacob and the wickedness of Rebecca and the wickedness of Rachel. But I'm convinced that although there's loads of good intention in those sermons and the commentators, great, godly, wise men write them, that they just got hold of this story the wrong way and read it the wrong way. And like I say, Luther and many of the other earlier commentators don't read it so much that way, and I think they were more right. So that's the burden of how I'll be teaching it. And if you're not persuaded, then okay. Uh-huh. We'll be getting to that. More or less this election statement that even in the womb... See, in the womb, Jacob and Esau fought. That means Jacob was already regenerated in the womb. Otherwise, they wouldn't have fought. And you often hear Jacob was a rotten man until he wrestled with God at Peniel. And that's when he was born again, or that's when God finally got his heart. And that's not true. That's not what the wrestling at Peniel is about. God doesn't win that match. Jacob wins the match. It's not about God defeating a sinner. It's something else altogether. The fact that they fought in the womb shows that Jacob was already regenerated. And the conflict was already there. Now we will go into our note. And to get into this, I want us to survey the book of Genesis real quickly. <laughs> quickly. We'll see if we get it done today. To get it in context, because we're not doing the whole book of Genesis. Genesis has a sevenfold structure. A lot of the books of the Bible do, especially early or sections of the Bible do. It's here again. And the book of Genesis is marked out by sections, by a phrase that you find about ten times in the book. These are the generations of. Chapter 5, verse 1, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Chapter 6, verse 9, these are the generations of Noah. This word generation in Hebrew is toledos. This ah is a feminine plural ending. You ever see it? Sabaoth, Lord of Sabaoth, Lord of hosts, armies, the feminine plural, ah. Im is the masculine plural, Elohim, the plural of the word El for God, majestic God, or many gods if it's in some context. This means generations. This is the plural generation. This is the singular, toledah would be the singular, generations. And the reason I throw that Hebrew word at you is that these are called Toledoth sections in Genesis. So if you wanted to study Genesis, one of the earliest things you get into is the Genesis is set up in Toledoth sections. That's the way it's laid out. These are the generations of so-and-so, and then there's a story. These are the generations of so-and-so, and there's a story. Well, if you count them up, you come up with ten sections. But if you look at it more carefully, you'll see that some of the sections are grouped, and you come up with seven sections, and the structure of Genesis winds up being an introduction and then seven sections, seven Toledoth sections that correspond to the seven days of Genesis 1. So let's glance, first of all, at the introductory section, which is the creation, Genesis 1, verse 1 to 2, verse 3. I'm not going to read it, obviously. You know it. These seven days show the working of the sevenfold spirit who comes into the world to work with it. The Bible tells us later on that the Spirit of God is seven spirits before God's throne. 
And that's the rhythm of the Spirit. When the Spirit moves or acts, He moves in a sevenfold sequence. Anything that the Spirit does in the Bible, if it's a series of things, you'll find that it's in a series of seven, particularly if it has to do with organizing or making the world. That's why it's all over the book of Revelation. After Pentecost, the Spirit comes and makes a new world and all these sevenfold activities. When the tabernacle is built, Bezalel is given the Spirit, and there are seven basic actions there. What's happening in Genesis chapter 1 is the action of the Holy Spirit. We read, And God said, Let there be light. God said, Let there be an expanse. God speaks, means the Father puts forth the Word, which is the second person. When that is sounded out loud, the Word breathes out the Spirit, which is the third person. Think of yourself, because you're the image of God. You're a person, you have thoughts, and if you speak those thoughts with breath, that comes out. You as a person are like God the Father. Your thoughts are like God the Word, and the breath that speaks them out is God the Spirit. The Spirit is sent forth. We send forth our thoughts when we speak them out loud. Now that's what's happening here. Implicitly, this is a Trinitarian action. God speaks the word that he has, he sounds it forth, and what is equivalent to that is that the earth that God made when it was formless and void and dark, the spirit hovers over the surface of the waters. He diagrammed it. Be real simple. Here's heaven, here's the world, and God sends the Spirit into the world, right at the beginning. And the Spirit makes light, glory light, there on that first day. The Spirit comes into the world and starts to work with the world, and he works in seven days. Where does the Spirit go on the sixth day just before it's all done? He goes into Adam. God breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. God inspirated into his nose the spirit of life. The spirit goes into us, and now we work with the world. What's your job? To be a copy of God, to be an image of God, and work with the world, just like God did. And we work with the world in the seven-day pattern. We have seven-day week. So the spirit comes into the world. He works with the world in seven days, a seven-fold action. We copy that. So as I have it down here, A, the seven days show the working of the sevenfold spirit who comes into the world to work with it. B, God speaks and puts forth the word, which is the second person. The word breathes out the spirit, which is the third person. Thus, the word works with the world via his spirit. Similarly, the breath of a human being conveys his inner thoughts out to the world. And in parallel to that, the hands of a man convey his inner thoughts to the world. You have thoughts and plans, you speak them out loud, and that changes things. Other things are changed by what you say. You say something mean and ugly to your wife or to your husband, things are going to be different. They're going to have to get over that. If you name your cat Spot, now everybody's going to call him Spot. That changes things. See, up until right now, this was just Kitty. Now it's Spot. Now everybody calls it Spot. The world has changed because now everybody's going to call him Spot instead of Kitty. 
you change the world by the words you speak. And parallel to that, we change the world with our hands. I may not say anything out loud, but I might take hold of something and work with it and make it different. So hands are parallel to language. Action is parallel to speech. In fact, in the Hebrew language, the word for speech and the word for action or thing are the same word. So they're much closer, even linguistically, in that older language. Well, in English we have it. We correct children when they use the word go for the word say. I asked him how to get over there, and he went, well, you go down such and such a street. You hear this all the time now. The word go or, or went for speech. He went this, he went that. So I'm talking to him, and he goes, my wife isn't in town this weekend. Well, go is an action verb. So we say, no, he said my wife is out of town this week, not he went my wife is out of town this week. But you've all heard this. It's California It was valley speak, and now it's everywhere speak. Well, that's because action and language are very, very similar. And so instinctively, people use those words interchangeably. It's not the best form of English, but that's why it comes to pass that people do this. So, the Spirit works with the world, the Spirit conveys God's breath to the world and changes it. Now, this sequence of seven speech actions is how God always works with the world. The reason I went through all that is to say, in the book of Genesis, which has to do with the beginning of things, you'll find this same sevenfold kind of action. The Spirit is working with the world in seven phases. The initial seven days and then seven larger phases. And that is why Genesis is that way. That's why the first seven books of the Bible are that way. Genesis, the book of the first day. Exodus, where the firmament is made. The firmament people, that's the tabernacle. Leviticus, having to do with flesh and blood, plants and sea. Numbers having to do with stars. Deuteronomy having to do with the organization of a group of people. Joshua having to do with the planting of a people in the land. And Judges having to do with sin on the Sabbath day. That spirit works that way. And so the Bible is written that way. Now, the first section that we have is the generations of the heaven and earth. That is, what the heaven and earth brought forth. The heavens and the earth bring forth, they marry and bring forth humanity. What is generated by the heavens and the earth? Chapter 2, verse 4. This is the generations of the heaven and the earth when they were created in the day Yahweh God made earth and heaven. What did heaven and earth bring forth? Well, heaven and earth married and they brought forth humanity. Verse 7. Then Yahweh God formed man of dust, not clay, dust of the ground. That's the earthly part. And breathed in his nostrils the breath of life. That's the heavenly part. The spirit comes from heaven into dust, marriage of earth and heaven, and man is formed. That is what the heavens and the earth generate. They generate Adam. And Adam generates Eve. And Adam and Eve generate Cain and Abel and Seth. That's the generations of the heaven and earth, and what the heaven and earth bring forth is Adam. This corresponds to day one. The creation of the heavens and earth out of formlessness corresponds to the creation of man. The earth was formless and the Spirit of God moved in. You got dust. That's about as formless as you can get. 
A brick has form. A rock has form. Clay has form. Dust has no form. Man wasn't made of clay. He was made of dust. It's formless. And then God's Spirit comes into it as parallel to day one. In Genesis 2, the creation of man corresponds to the generation of light on day one. If we were to look at it, we're not going to. Genesis 2 has the same sevenfold outline as Genesis 1. If you look at the sprays, the Lord God did this, the Lord God did that. It comes out to seven. Well, not exactly seven, but it follows the sequence in Genesis 1. And forming man is parallel to making light on the first day, which is followed throughout in the Bible constantly. Human beings are lights, they're stars, so forth. Man is initially a firmament light. Man is destined, when the firmament is removed, to become a heavenly light. Then there is the separation of light and darkness on day one. It says God separated the light from the darkness. He saw the light was good. called the light day, darkness he called night. That separation theme is carried through in this section of Genesis by the judgment on man where he is separated from the garden and then primarily the separation of Cain and Abel into a light and dark kind of people. And this section goes down to the end of chapter 4. The next section is the generations of Adam. Chapter 5 says, this is the book of the generations of Adam. And it talks about Adam. And Adam had a son in his likeness named Seth. So Adam generates Seth. And then Enosh and Kenan and Mahalalel and Jared and Enoch and Methuselah and Lamech and Noah. This corresponds to the second day of the establishment of a firmament to separate waters above from waters below. Not immediately obvious, but I'll leave that for you to meditate on. The godly line of Seth is the human form of the firmament, and the corruption of that line is answered by the removal of the firmament and the recoalescence of the waters in the flood. The godly line stands between, this is what Adam was supposed to do anyway, you have the world, and you have heaven, and you have this firmament between heaven and earth. You have a mountain that rises up out of the center of the world. And on the holy mountain stands the priest who mediates between God and man, and symbolically speaking, his position in the firmament, below God and above the world. That's Adam's position. And that's the position of the godly line that comes from Adam, the Sethites. And the creation of this race of people, the Sethite race, as opposed to the Canaanite race, is equivalent to the formation of the firmament and links with that aspect of creation week. This is the second Toledoff section in Genesis, and it relates to the firmament. All the things made in the first week have a human equivalent now in these stories. This group of human beings is the place between heaven and earth. Well, we have a long introduction, but then Noah brings forth Ham, Shem, and Japheth, and then the whole table of nations that come from them. Just as in day three of Genesis 1, there are two sections where land and sea are separated and then the plant to put on the earth. The two actions on the third day. So here, the separation of land and sea is answered by the flood, and then the fact that as the flood recedes, we have a new separation of land and sea. Very much the same language as in Genesis 1. If you want to read the passage, you'll find it. And then the multiplication of plants on the land 
is answered by the table of nations in chapter 10. These are the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So it's a subsection, another subsection of Toledo stuff. But you have these 70 nations, all these people growing up, which are the plants on the earth. Does the book of Genesis symbolize human beings as plants? Why, yes it does. And that's clear from the very opening chapter. When God says that the earth will bring forth thorns and thistles, draw this up here, earth brings forth thorns and good plants. What is man made out of? He's made of earth. What's the next thing that happens after God says the earth will bring forth thorns as well as good plants? You get Cain and you get Abel. But that's not where it starts. It starts when it says that the seed of the woman will defeat the seed of the serpent. Well, women don't have seeds in some biological sense. You get some odd interpretations here. Well, men have seeds and women have eggs and that has nothing to do with this. In Genesis chapter 1, the plants are said to have seeds. The word seed occurs about eight or nine times in Genesis 1 and establishes what's meant. Verse 11. Let the earth sprout forth vegetation, plants seeding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit with seed in them on the earth. And the earth brought forth vegetation, herbs seeding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind. On and on the word seed goes. I have given you every plant seeding seed and every tree that has fruit yielding seed. The seed of a plant is when it blooms and has seeds that become the next generation. The seed of the woman is when she blooms by getting pregnant and has the next generation. So the analogy is to plant. It's not that the woman has an egg or the man has a seed inside. The seed is the blossom and the child. Just as the seed of a plant is the plant child. The seed of the woman is the child of the woman, but it's plant language. So to make people analogous to plants is right there in Genesis. And of course it's everywhere else, isn't it? I mean, <laughs> where it is in the Psalms. Psalm 1. It'll be like a tree planted by rivers of water. So trees and plants as people is everywhere in the Bible, but it starts right here in the beginning. And we could actually do more with it, but I wanted to call your attention to it because here we are in the third day section of Genesis, and what do we get? All these nations which are plants growing and spreading all over the earth. Then for the fourth day section of Genesis, we have the generations of Shem. Just a little section. The fourth day is when the lights are put into firmament and the Shemites are the new light bearers to rule the heavens. And the Shemites in Genesis 9, you remember this, Blessed be Yahweh, God of Shem, and let Canaan be a servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and Canaan be his slave. Shem has responsibility for worship. Japheth needs to dwell in the tents of Shem as it comes to worship. So, originally, the sons of Adam through Seth are the firmament line. Now, after the flood, we have Noah and we have three sons. Ham, Shem, Japheth, that's not the order. Japheth, 
Shem and Ham is actually the order. Shem is isolated to be the seed line. Later on, that will be specified to Heber, and then that will be specified to Abram. And Abraham has two sons, so it will be specified to Isaac. And Isaac has two sons, and that will be specified to Jacob. So there's a series of narrowing specifications that takes place through here. And this word Eber, of course, is where we get the word Hebrew. So it's specified to Eber, and then specified to Abram. But this is a new firmament line, light bearers, who maintain God's truth in that firmament position between heaven and earth. The fifth section in Genesis is the generations of Terah. What did Terah bring forth? Well, Terah brought forth Abraham. So this is the Abraham narrative. 11.27, these are the generations of Terah. This is the Toledos of Terah. What did Terah bring forth? Terah brought forth Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Well, the line is going to be specified to Abram. We're not going to look at the Abram narrative except as it relates to Jacob. But here it is. Corresponding to day five when great swarming creatures were made and God gave his first command to any creature, these things, multiplication and law, are highlighted in the story of Abram, which Genesis 11:27-25:11 delineate. In fact, this theme of multiplication and swarms of people is greatly emphasized here. God says to Abram, your seed will be like the stars of the heaven. It will be like the sand of the sea. And not only that, Abram's brother Nahor has 12 kids. And this whole business of having 12 kids starts up here, which is multiplication. You have 12 kids, you multiply. You haven't just reproduced. You done multiplied, baby. And as part of this story, we read about the 12 kids of Nahor. That's in chapter 22, verses 20 to 24. Oh, Milcah is born children to Nahor, Uz and Buzz, and Kemuel and Kethet and Hazel and Pidlash and Didlath and Bethuel. Bethuel became the father of Rebekah, so that's important. And his concubine also bore Teba and Gaham and Tehash and Maacah. So, I mean, to show this to you in terms of this multiplication theme corresponding to the fifth day, as it runs through here, we have Terah, and we have Nahor, Abraham, and Haran. Haran died. He's the father of Lot. Abram basically has two kids, and then he has six more later on. Nahor has twelve. Of these two kids of Abram, one of them is Isaac, and that's the one that counts. Isaac has two kids. Of these two kids that he has, he has Isaac and Ishmael. Ishmael has twelve kids. Isaac has two kids. So the twelve multiplication comes out again. Isaac has two kids. He has Esau, and he has Jacob. Jacob now finally has twelve kids. Esau has a bunch of kids, and the story goes on from there. But this is the way it's running here. It's part of the patience theme that we will be looking at, because patience is a major theme in Genesis. Abram has to look over his brother and say, gosh, he has 12 kids. And then Isaac has to look over at Ishmael and says, gosh, he has 12 kids. Now, I don't get to have 12 kids. So my wife was barren. Abram says, my wife is barren and my brother's got 12 kids. Finally, we have just one. Then the next generation, Isaac says, my wife's barren. 
Thank goodness we had two. But my brother Ishmael, he's got 12 kids. You get down here to Jacob. Jacob says, gosh, I've got 12 kids. And he goes and meets Esau. Esau not only has a bunch of kids, but he's become a king. So at every point, the believers are being told, you have to wait and be patient while God gives all these goodies. I mean, I know you don't regard having 12 kids as a goodie. But if you lived on a farm, you might. And these were agriculturalists having lots of kids to help with the herds and everything. That was good. And then you have a sheikdom, you want to have a lot of kids and all that. It's different. Living in a city, you don't have large families. Living on a farm, it's a different ballgame. So back then, 12 kids, that was really something. Of course, you generally had more than one wife to generate those kids, as we see in these stories. Every now and then you run into people who think birth control is always wrong and that everybody ought to have 12, 13, 14 kids. I want my wife to have 15 kids. In the Bible, when people had that many kids, they had more than one wife. It wasn't just one wife getting totally worn out having 15 kids. If you want to do that, it's fine with me. But I'd just like to make the point that when you see huge families in the Bible with loads of kids, you usually find there's more than one wife involved. <laughs> Not just one lady having 15 kids. Or 12. At any rate, topic of Multiplication is the theme here. The next section is the generations of Ishmael and Isaac. That's two sections which needs to be grouped together as one. In 25 verse 12, these are the generations of Ishmael. And we got his 12 sons who were 12 princes. My goodness, he's already got princes. And then in verse 19, these are the generations of Isaac. Now, what we see here... And this is important for you to understand in terms of the way Genesis is put together. We've got the generations of Terah, which is the Abraham narrative. The next section is the generations of Isaac, which is the Jacob narrative. Now you'll notice there is no section called the generations of Abraham. There is no Isaac section. There's an Abraham section, a Jacob section, and the next one, the last one we'll see, are the generations of Jacob, which is the Joseph-Judah section. We just call it the Joseph section. Abraham section, Jacob section, Joseph section. There is no Isaac section. Not the way Genesis is put together. You've got it in your notes. We'll look at it next week, I'm sure. The Jacob section is a very carefully constructed chiasm. And the Abraham section is a very carefully constructed chiasm. There isn't any overlap. These are very carefully constructed literary units. So, there is no Isaac section. Rather, the first part of Isaac's life is in the Abraham section when he is a son. And the second half of the Isaac story is in the Jacob section where he is a father. But there is no section dealing with Isaac as such. And that's important to understand. If you want to have a handle on Genesis, you can get confused by that. So, gee, where does the Abraham section stop and the Isaac section stop? Well, there ain't no Isaac section. An Abraham section includes Isaac as a child. Then you got a Jacob section that includes Isaac as an adult, as a father. But nothing dealing with him as such. The generations of Ishmael and Isaac correspond to day six. 
I say that just as they six have two sections, the creation of animals and the creation of man, that the Toledos or generations of Ishmael correspond to the creation of helpful animals because the Ishmaelites are not enemies of Israel. Ishmael is regenerated, he's born again, he's in heaven, the Bible tells us so, and they were not enemies of Israel, not at this point. So they're helpers. And then the second half of day six is the creation of man, which is the generations of Isaac and is concerned with Jacob, the man who is able to wrestle with God and prevail. What does it mean to be a real, true, godly man? And then the last section, the Sabbath section in Genesis, is the generations of Esau and Jacob. Genesis 36 is the generation of Esau. That's Cain. That's the bad thorny plant. And then the generation of Jacob is the story of Joseph and Judah, which has to do with Sabbath rest, coming into rest, enthronement, feeding the entire world, and living in the best part of the land. Trace it through in Genesis. It says that the area of Sodom was like the circle of the Jordan, like the Garden of Eden. Then it says that the land of Goshen was the best part of Egypt, and it was like the circle of the Jordan. Being put into the land of Goshen is equivalent to being put back in the Garden of Eden. And Genesis ends with a return to full redemption and Sabbath rest in the story of Joseph. It's like everything has been fixed, at least partially, in terms of the story. The story's not over because we get to Exodus. We find that it all falls apart because Jesus has to do it fully and finally. The Genesis ends that way. The generations of Esau in chapter 36 point to the fall of man, which happened on the Sabbath. A false Sabbath rest is given to Esau as he multiplies and takes control. That's all over chapter 36. Long chapter there of all the princes and dukes and everything else in Esau's kingdom. While a true Sabbath rest is given to the godly as they are in the land of Goshen. This is a general chiastic structure here in Genesis. You can look at it. It's here in the text. I don't think there's any great value in trying to run through that. The seven days of Genesis 1 are a chiasm, and therefore Genesis, these sections are a chiasm. The Adam who doesn't come to rule at the beginning is answered by the Adam or Joseph who does come to rule. Adam is supposed to mature and become a ruler. He didn't. Joseph does. Adam makes his own clothes. Joseph is given robes by those who honor him. Adam is not honored. And not given robes, he's just given bloody animal skins to put on. Those are contrasted stories. Generations of Adam correspond to the generations of Ishmael and Isaac. Who are these people? You can look at that. Next time, we'll finish this up very briefly by looking at this fourth section, the three falls and the three prophetic patriarchs. And then you have in your notes the overall outline of the Jacob narrative and where it's going to go. But that is what's going on in Genesis. The only other thing I would like to say in terms of Genesis and these stories, because this is important to the Jacob story that we'll be looking at, is that it still seems a bit odd for the title of the Abraham narrative, The Life of Abraham, to be called The Generations of Terah. I mean, who's Terah? No big deal. Generations of Terah turns out to be all about Abraham. The reason is, not just the idea of generating one thing out of another, which is what Genesis is about, but also the idea of fathers generating sons 
is a super major theme in this book. And the reason for that is that it's the seed of the woman, the second Adam, who's going to accomplish everything. And so at every point in Genesis, it's the son, the next person down the line, who is going to accomplish things, who's going to save the world and be the Messiah. The first thing that Eve says when she gives birth to Cain is she thinks he's the Messiah. I've gotten a man with Yahweh's help. Turns out to be wrong. But there's a seed of a woman who's going to accomplish something. Or the descendant of Abraham, the son. And so it's the son of Terah, Abraham, who's going to accomplish something. But it turns out to be it's the son of Abram, Isaac, who's going to die for the life of the world, although only in a figure. Well, it turns out it's the son of Isaac, Jacob, who's going to wrestle with God and prevail. Well, it turns out it's the son of Jacob, Joseph, who's going to lead the people back into Sabbath rest. It's the son. It's what's generated. And that's why the book of Genesis is laid out this way, as a series of sections that are generations out of somebody else. The father isn't adequate, so the son has to come and do it. And then that son turns out to be inadequate, so his son has to come and do it. And that gives you the whole theme that history is going to move down until Jesus comes and he is the son who is fully capable of doing everything that needs to be done. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. That's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.